just want to comment on the reading of the Scripture today. I think all of us struggled through that. Uh, well read, Patrick. Uh, it reminded me of my days of doing Hebrew with all the M's. Uh, just a, a word of explanation. We, we, we read through all of the Scriptures. And sometimes we come across these very difficult passages. And uh, we don't want to skip them out because we're told that all Scripture is God-breathed. And we'll get to a time where we'll preach those kind of difficult passages, and we have in the past, and then we'll call on Patrick to preach that Sunday. <laughs> Thinking about the service this morning, service every week really, approximately half of our service is us speaking to God. We sing, uh, we pray. The other half of the service is God speaking to us. That's why we take up the Bible. And so turn with me in your Bible and to Exodus chapter 5. And it is quite a long reading this morning, but do follow with me. It's just part of the narrative, and uh, we do need to see something of the broad uh, sweep of the unfolding of this historical event. So Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, Afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us, Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let's go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work. Your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel whom Pharaoh, Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work, 
No straw will be given you. You must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. They said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Chapter 6. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abram, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Just so far, the reading of God's Word. Lord, you have spoken, and I do pray that we would be those who listen. Those who listen and also submit and obey to the glory of your name. Amen. I want to introduce the message this morning uh, by going back a little bit in history and uh, to an era of Charles and John Wesley and George Whitfield. I think those are names that some of you will uh, recognize. Many of the old hymns we used to sing or some of the hymns we still sing, written by Charles Wesley. Well, uh, in a book that I'm currently reading, I was surprised to read that for three decades, for 30 years, and, and, and there's a quote I'm going to give, for three decades, magistrates, squires, and clergy, and I want to pause there. Magistrates are those who are supposed to hold up the law. Squires, perhaps a word we don't use, instead we would use the elites, those who govern the country. The clergy are those who are supposed to be servants of God. So we're told here, for three decades, these magistrates, squires, and clergy turned a blind eye to the continual, the continual drunken and brutal attacks by mobs and gangs on John Wesley and his supporters. 
Wesley endured physical assault with missiles of various kinds. Now, I don't know what they threw at him. Tomatoes or rocks. Carries on. Frequently, bulls would be driven into the midst of the congregations or musical instruments blared to drown out the preacher's voice. Time after time, the Wesley brothers and Whitfield narrowly escaped death, while several of their fellow itinerant preachers were attacked and their houses set on fire. Now, I was surprised to read this, uh, and, I, and I'm not sure about you, but, but I was under the impression that the ministry of these men back in that era that became known as the Great Awakening or the Evangelical Revival, I thought it was all plain sailing and upward. Instead, we see, I discovered in reading this book, that for these men and others with them, and like us today, efforts in gospel ministry can be met with malicious opposition and regular setbacks. At times, it looks and feels like we're on the back foot. Therefore, the title of my message this morning. It feels we're not going forward. We, we're not gaining ground. It feels like we're more on the retreat. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Many of you are involved in ministry. And you're kind of, week by week, you're going about your business of serving God, and, and you're faithfully uh, delivering or executing your, your, your efforts in, in ministry under God, for God, uh, from God. And, and you've got out there and, and you've done what, what you believe God has commanded you to do. And, and in that process, you begin to think and you begin to conclude, what's the point? What's the point? It would be better to do nothing. Now in this passage, and it, I know it was a long passage that I read this morning, we see something similar to this happening. Moses, Moses did what God commanded him to do. Seemingly to fail. Seemingly to get nowhere. And so we would think, as I'm sure he must have thought, and, and, and I believe this is often what we do think in, in the local church, that faithfulness to God brings success. Or, or we could put that differently, obedience to God's commands must lead to great blessing always. Well, looking at this passage, Moses experienced something very different. He went from that exhilarating experience of the burning bush that we considered a couple of weeks ago to the terrible fiery trial of finding opposition. Well, looking further afield in the Bible, and I think it's always good to see patterns but being on the back foot in ministry is not unique to Moses. A couple of examples. We know that God called and commanded Daniel. And Daniel ended up in the lion's den. God called and commis commissioned Elijah. Remember Elijah? And, and he fled and, and literally uh, uh, was isolated and, and was feeling very sorry for himself, uh, feeling that he was rejected by the king and also his fellow countrymen. And even going back to Noah. Noah commanded by God to build the ark, and he became the laughingstock 
of society. So all that in this introduction this morning, because it brings me to my first point uh, of this message this morning. Your faithfulness to God and discouraging setbacks. Well, what were these discouraging setbacks that Moses experienced in this uh, very first courageous effort in uh, obeying God after his experience and encounter with God. But I want to couple that with some application because I want to ask you this morning and, and us as a church, what, what are the kinds of setbacks that you have found or that you may still find when you're being faithful in your efforts to obey God and to do what he says? Well, there are two areas that I want to raise. The first is you will encounter ridicule from the unbelieving world. Unbelieving people, and they're around us, won't always like, neither will they agree with what you are doing and saying. If you are seeking to be faithful to God, like Moses and Aaron in this instance, you will encounter contempt and ridicule from the unbelieving world. Moses and Aaron, they presented their demand to Pharaoh that God had given them. And in chapter 5 and verse 1, they do that. We have a record of it. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. The response of Pharaoh is very typical of the kind of response that you can expect as you seek also to obey God and be faithful to Him. Typical of what people may say to you or think about you because of the message you bring. It's the second verse of chapter 5. Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, I want to put that in just sort of plain English language. Uh, me coming from the south of Johannesburg, you know what Pharaoh's doing? He's, he's saying over here, I don't care two hoots about what you or your God is saying. Couldn't be bothered. We need to remember that Pharaoh was a highly educated man. He was a man of learning, he was informed, and certainly would have considered himself an expert in the area of the gods. I discovered in my reading this week that he was uh, considered to be one of the gods. Uh, he was called the son, S-O-N, of the S-U-N, the son, the son of the son. In addition to this, there were some, in his uh, experience, 80 other gods in Egypt. And so when Moses and Aaron started speaking about the God of Israel, he probably was thinking and contemplating and thinking, well, who is this God? Does he exist in my database of gods? And to make matters worse, Moses and Aaron, <laughs> they didn't seem much about their God to commend to Pharaoh. Again, put yourself in, in his shoes, in his experience. I mean, Pharaoh knew visible gods that were successful, the sun god being one of them. He appeared every morning. And in blazing success, he would, he would appear and he would traverse the skies and, and, and he would disappear at night and he would reappear the next day. And, and so that cycle would continue. But Moses and Aaron were asking him 
to obey an invisible God, God that he couldn't see, whose people had been slaves for 430 years. I think he thought their God was a dud God. Surely Pharaoh had every reason to tell them to get lost and get real. Why would he, Pharaoh, change his agenda? Why would he be willing to reduce his demand for bricks so that a bunch of slaves who claim to worship an invisible God who has left them in slavery for 430 years quite frankly seem powerless? So what we see over here, and trying to bring this in application, is a clash of agendas. Pharaoh wanted bricks. He had on his agenda the importance of building an empire, a kingdom. Well, God demanded worship. And so you have God's agenda. That's the reality for us today as well. God's agenda on the one hand, clashing with the world's agenda. It's no different for us today. We ought to be and should be about God's eternal business the world is consumed and obsessed with temporal bricks, temporal kingdoms, temporal projects of this life. And so this unbelieving world that we're seeking to reach out there is, is not queuing up. They're not queuing up to get rid of self-serving priorities because of the sinful nature. They, they're not wanting to, and I quote Roger Elvis over here, he says, they're not wanting to get rid of the wonderful toys that are so entertainingly indulgent. Isn't that true? And so when you, when you, we act in obedience to God in bringing what you know to be true from the Word of God, what you know to be true as good news of deliverance from sin to the world, they resist you. They will resist you. And they'll do so in any way they can. Let me give you some examples, some present-day realities. When you point out sin to people today, they will resist you by calling you names. You bigot. He's a fundamentalist. When you speak about Jesus and the necessity of, a, of His atoning death, they will laugh at you and think you're out of touch, that you're still living in the dark ages and you haven't arrived in this sophisticated, um, educated world. When they see you come to church on a Sunday morning, setting aside time to gather together with other people, and they observe that you do this week by week, they relegate you into the ranks of those who are either fanatical or lunatics. Why would you go church on a Sunday when you can go to the mall or have a picnic? And when you declare Jesus as the only way of salvation, this is coming soon, it's already here, I hear it in certain instances, when you declare Jesus as the only way of salvation, they will accuse you of hate speech. And so, folk, as you seek to obey God, you need to recognize that not only Moses, not only Aaron, but we today also will encounter ridicule from the unbelieving world. But there is a second category or second response that I want to address here this morning, is that you may encounter unhappiness from the people of God. 
people who profess to be the people of God. You see, Pharaoh responded to Moses and Aaron by placing a heavier workload on the people of Israel. <laughs> they, they now would have to produce the same number of bricks, in other words, the same number of the same output, but they would have to find their own resources, their own straw. And so this re results in a, in a reaction from the Hebrew foremen, who also were Hebrews. They, they were put uh, in charge under the taskmasters. And so they were put in a very challenging situation. So in verse 21, uh, we read here that they, 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 they said to Moses and Aaron, they respond to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They're not happy with Moses and Aaron. These foremen had become so accustomed. Now think about this situation. 430 years they had become so accustomed to, to Pharaoh and his domination, the reality of Pharaoh, there was no room in their hearts. Hebrew people, the people of God, who, who, had, who had heard repeatedly what God had done in the past, but no longer was there room in their minds and hearts for the possibility of God doing something extraordinary. They just accepted the status quo. They'd got so busy with the, the immediate, the temporal, they could not see the eternal the bigger picture. And, and for me, that, that, that expresses, in fact, it shouts forth the challenging and, and the terrible possibility of the people of God, us, getting so occupied with the present, with life as it must be lived, and, and the bricks of life, there's no longing for the moving of the Spirit. Coming even together on a Sunday morning, thinking to ourselves, maybe today God will do something extraordinary. God will move by His Spirit in doing something unexpected. You may find that obedience to God and what He commands in the Bible will even disturb and disrupt professing believers in the church. It is because we so easily, we so easily are snoozing because we find ourselves comfortable with the status quo. And if I may say so, just even a few weeks ago, we raised this proposal, we had some discussion, should we add another service, should we plant another uh, campus? There was a bit of resistance because the status quo is comfortable. But isn't there a command that clearly says to us in the Bible that we ought to make disciples of the nations? I remember some many, many years ago uh, challenging a Bible study group. They had got to a certain size, and I said to them, why don't you consider splitting so that or multiplying is the better word. So you have two Bible studies so that then you can reach out to more people. And, and the response I got was, no, we like each other. And, and, and we actually don't want anybody else to join us. But aren't we supposed to make disciples? Are we not supposed to reach out to others? And, and so I'm using simple examples, but, 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 but we can. We can so often be comfortable. We can be snoozing, enjoying the nap, going through the motions rather than proactively or actively uh, obeying the commands of God. And when somebody comes and stirs the pot, there's a reaction. There's a second category that I've discovered 
in this regard, it is when one tries to bring the entire Bible to the self-centered agendas of the clergy. And I'm one of those clergy. It's so easy for us clergy to selectively make use of the Bible. And when, in some instances, we bring certain passages that are uncomfortable or awkward, there's a reaction, there's a criticism, there's a rejection. And, and so we need to be careful. We need to understand, and this is the point of this message, is faithfulness to the Word of God, obedience to all that God has revealed, will sometimes put you on the back foot because not everybody's going to like what you do outside the church and inside of the church. The lure of the status quo, because it's comfortable, or the lure of pragmatic success, where we, we, we clergy focus so on building our own little kingdoms instead of the kingdom of God, can actually be a problem and create a reaction of antagonism and criticism because we don't see the longer term or the longer term and the internal purposes of God. And so that brings me to my second point this morning that I believe from this passage is your discouraging setbacks and the help of God. I think it's understandable that Moses sank into despair. Verse 22 of chapter 5, Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Do you get his emotion over here? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. In other words, Moses is whining to God. He's whinging. He's complaining. What I find so full of grace here is that God did not rebuke Moses for his lack of faith, but encourages his weak servant, and he ministers to him with reassurance. And I want to pick on those three, or three reassuring words that God brings. He, in the first instance, speaks, and he says, you can rely, and this is an application for us, you can rely on God's timing. Because God tells Moses that Pharaoh's first reaction was not to be taken as his last reaction. Very important lesson. You do something in ministry, you do something again in ministry, you don't get the kind of response you think you ought to get, you don't get the kind of response you ought to get, and you think, well, God's not at work. But it's not yet God's time to do that work. Pharaoh was completely in God's hand. See that in this passage. And Pharaoh would, in God's time, not only release these people, but he'll drive them away. Chapter 6 and verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. Now, there's, there's an important word of reassurance over here because particularly for people, and I'm one of those people who can be very impatient. I'm a task-orientated person. I like to see things done, and I want them done yesterday. You ask people in my home. I don't like things to, to be left. And I think others of you also get impatient, and, and, and you, you do us, you do us. And when it comes to things in the kingdom, I also think I want them done now. But from this passage, we learn, no, hang on a minute. It's not God's time now. When is it God's time? We must be patient. We need to trust Him. 
I think in the category of the conversion of a loved one. You're praying for someone, I'm praying for someone, more than one in my family who need to be converted to Christ. For years I've been praying. Rest in God's timing. What about us as a church in the unfolding purposes of God? We're facing an issue here at Arcadia at the moment. We took a decision early on in the year that we would sell this facility and, and relocate. So far, nothing's happened other than a few people who've come to visit. And, 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 and so I'm becoming impatient. What, what, what is God's timing? What is God leading us to do? We need to be remembering that God is all-powerful, and I'll get to that just now, that God is orchestrating and unfolding His purposes. And their other needs, perhaps their personal needs, when it comes to struggles economically or financially with employment or uh, difficulties with a particular person. And God's timing. The older I've got, the more I see hindsight is such a valuable tool. It helps us to see the fact that God does keep His word, that God is faithful that God's timing is always perfect. We see that in the coming of Jesus, when the fullness of time had come. So that's, that's a reassurance, uh, number one this morning. Number two, you can rely on the unchanging nature of God. Quite an important thing that uh, God reminds Moses here. Uh, Moses, don't forget that God had not changed since he re revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Remember, we spent that sermon speaking about the, that declaration by God, I am. And, and, and in this passage, uh, God is reminding Moses again, remember who I am. And, 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 and while you remember who I am, understand who Pharaoh is. And perhaps I can remind you, there's this wonderful I am, the verb to be. Well, Pharaoh, Pharaoh was not. He was born at some point in time. And then Pharaoh, in those days, you could say Pharaoh is, but only for a season. And then Pharaoh was not. In fact, think about yourself this morning. Your life has changed since you walked into this room. You're 35 minutes older. You're always changing. Everything is changing. There's nothing that doesn't change other than God. God is, I am. He is. He was. He is. Always will be. Do you, do you get the difference? There's not competition between Pharaoh and God. God is God and Pharaoh is a derived being. And so when God says in verse 2 here, God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And so, is God going to do what He says He's going to do? Of course He's going to do it. He will build His church in a pagan, hostile world. Is God going to perfect the saints, those of us we struggle along the way with our sinful nature? Of course He's going to do it. Will God carry you through your huge difficulty? Yes, He will. I don't know if you noticed in the latter part of that reading, how many times God says, I will. I will, I will, I will, I will. He, he, this is the God who keeps His word in every instance. We have clearly spoken. We have shown Himself. God will show Himself to be faithful and sufficient. He will always be faithful and sufficient. And then there's another element of encouragement uh, with regards to the unchanging nature of God. 
few verses later, we see again that this God, who is unchanging, has unrelenting compassion to His people. Verse 5 of chapter 6, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. Remember, He had heard them back in the earlier chapters too. Nothing had changed. God still recognized the need. He still had compassion for these people. And so we need to remember that too. God understands, God sees, God knows. I found myself going back to Lamentations chapter 3 many times. Reassurance. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. God is unchanging. You can trust Him. Thirdly, just very briefly, because I've already tackled this uh, principle or issue in a previous sermon. You can rely on the firm promises of God. We see it again in this passage in uh, verse 5 where He speaks in chapter 6, I've remembered my covenant. God, God has given an undertaking. God has made a promise. He's entered into a covenant with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was a covenant that included the descendants inheriting the land of Canaan. Nothing would cause God to forget that covenant. I appeared, he says, and, and, uh, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. You can be encouraged in spite of being on the back foot. Now I want to conclude uh, this message. Most of us this morning here know the story very well of Moses and Pharaoh and how it ends. How does it end? In spite of the setbacks, we know that Moses stayed faithful. Say that again. In spite of the setbacks, Moses stayed faithful. He didn't have to connive another plan. And eventually the people of Israel were released from bondage. God's timing. It is important to ask the question, how did that happen? Was it because Moses suddenly became sufficient for the task? Definitely not. Was it because the people of Israel suddenly became cooperative and supportive and submissive? No. Was it because Pharaoh suddenly suddenly became sympathetic and soft-hearted and agreeable? No. None of the above. It was because God, God had bound Himself to Israel and showed Himself to be strong on her behalf. And so, can God be trusted in accomplishing all that He intended? Yes. God will build His church. Quote that verse. Let's believe it. Not only will he build his church, but there will be in that church people from every tribe and nation and language. Therefore, we outward-looking, missions to the end of the world, missions, evangelism in our city. We know that redemption was accomplished. Jesus died for sinful men and women. And currently we know, we can believe that, that redemption is being applied. There will come a day when the bride, the church, will be presented at the wedding feast of the Lamb. All of this is certain. Why? 
because we're strong, because the church is creative, and we've got some uh, very clever people writing books today? No. It's because God is at work. I'm going to take a bit longer. I say to sometimes in our pastor's meeting, I said to some of the guys, it didn't seem like you could land that plane on Sunday. Well, I'm going to take a bit of time to land this plane this morning. I've got a story to end with. I want to end this message by going back to Wesley. John Wesley in the 18th century church in England. It was known as the Gin Age. During that Gin Age, horrible child abuse was often the result of drinking this strong, fiery, poisonous gin. Everybody, most people. Irish historian by the name of William Leckie defined the national gin drinker's drunkenness as the master curse of the English between 1720 and 1750. The inevitable evils of that alcoholism followed and we know them because we see them today, poverty, violence, prostitution, and a disregard for human life, murder. We know that in that era, gambling was a national obsession across the board of all classes. Promiscuity became a sport. And I want to pause there for a minute because I've heard many people say that the world today is sinking into such a place that it could never recover. Well, in those days, promiscuity was abundance. We think that the LGBTQ plus movement is something new. It's nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. This promiscuity is described as, as taking place from court masquerades to fornication in broad daylight on the village green. Or, or, listen to this one, selling one's wife by auction at the cattle market. That's bad. The Bible became a closed book, and the result was ignorance, lawlessness, and savagery. It was said by Horace Walpole in 1751, one is forced to travel even at noon as if, it were going, as if one were going to battle. Do you get the idea of the, the state of this nation? Savagery showed itself in the plundering of shipwrecked vessels. Who, these vessels were lured by false signals onto rocks. And the savagery was seen in the indifference shown to the drowning soldiers. I hope you're getting the feel here. Now, here's my point. But for God, raising up courageous men like John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, who obediently and unashamedly preached the truth of God from the Bible. Folk, that's it. And they did so against opposition, against all odds, sometimes being on the back foot in the face of opposition. And I quote, I'll tell you about this book in a minute, for more than 50 years, Wesley fed the Bible the word of life to drink sodden, brutalized, and neglected multitudes. It's on the back foot. Again, if you know anything of church history, Britain was saved from lapsing into 
infidelity. Well, I'm going to quote from the book that I've uh, been currently reading. I am currently reading. Restoration of the authority of the Bible in the English world amounted to a civilization finding its soul. If you're interested in that book, it's uh, a book by an, an Indian author, Vishal Mangal Wadi, and the title of the book, The Book That Made the World. Here's my concluding remark. Will you, will we, have the guts to stand up and be counted in the face of opposition as those who are unashamed of God and His Word, even if it means sometimes being on the back foot. Trusting God. Now, here's this, this tremendous application here. Trusting God that God would look with favor on our country. We need God to look with favor on our country. That it be said in years to come as a result of faithful and sacrificial and fearless and courageous preaching, South Africa became a civilization that found its soul. Lord, I pray for that this morning. We can so easily criticize and complain and whine about the state of affairs. And it is true, Lord, the, the condition, the state of affairs is discouraging where we see those who are meant to uphold the law neglect the law, when we see those who are meant to govern for the sake of the people only concerned about their own pockets, when we see those in the clergy running after every fad and fancy to build their own little kingdom. But help us, we pray, Lord, to be faithful in the preaching and proclamation of your word. And so doing, as I've said in this, this, this conclusion, that you, Lord, would look with favor and turn this country around. May you raise up men and women who are willing to stand up and be courageous and be counted against all odds. For the sake of your name and for the sake of this people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.